The green car skidded down the road, driving fast and wild. But there was nothing in its way. This was a quiet residential neighborhood. Inside, three men were shouting and arguing about which turn to take next, sweat pouring down their faces under their masks. They needed to get off of these quiet streets and onto a main thoroughfare where they could disappear into traffic. Then they could ditch the car for a rickshaw. Otherwise, the police would be on their tail any minute. And there had been witnesses who'd seen this car. There had been witnesses to everything, from the two shooters and the driver and their masks, to the slew of bullets raining across the quiet street. To the assassination of Poulan Davy, the bandit queen. Finally, the car slid into the busy streets of the Pundit Punt Marg neighborhood. In the distance, the three assassins could hear the sirens ringing. Out of the car, into a rickshaw. The plan had miraculously worked, for now. But there was plenty more to come. This assassination was about more than Poole and Davy's life. It was about India's future. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on Poolan Devi, India's so-called bandit queen. She was assassinated on July 26, 2001, seemingly at the hands of Sher Singh Rana, a high-caste man with political aspirations. But the caste-based tensions that led to Poolan's death ran much deeper than her relationship with Rana. They tied into the very fabric of India itself. Last week, we discussed the violent story of caste conflict and retribution that led to both Poolan's fame and to her strong contingent of upper-caste enemies. We also discussed Sher Singh Rana's place in that story as an upper-caste man from the state neighboring Poolan's home. Ultimately, Rana's aspirations led him to kill Poolan. This week, we'll delve into the aftermath of the assassination, including Rana's decade-long trial, its impact on his political ambitions, and what might have happened had Poulin lived. At 1.30 p.m. on July 26, 2001, three masked men in a green car shot 37-year-old Poulin Davy as she came home from Parliament's morning session. Her bodyguard was hit as well. He attempted to return fire 
and according to witnesses, seemed to hit one of the shooters, but the assailant still got away. Poulin's household called an ambulance, but then decided to hail down a passing van instead of waiting for it to arrive. They made it to the hospital by 1.40, just 10 minutes after the shooting. But they were still too late. Poulin was already dead. Thankfully, her bodyguard recovered from the attack, but all of India had some recovering to do too. The indomitable Poulan Devi, bandit queen turned member of parliament, was the champion of India's low castes. Many Indians saw her as a hero. They were shocked at her violent murder. And while her assassination certainly gave a dramatic end to her story, it seemed impossible that her death could come so abruptly. She was, after all, just 37. Parliament's afternoon session was called to a halt as lawmakers confirmed the news. Many were just as saddened as India's common people, particularly because the legislature included plenty of low-caste people who'd risen up by promising caste reform and equality, just like Poulin. When it reconvened, the House observed one minute of silence as a mark of respect. But not everyone in India was interested in championing reform like Poulin and her allies. She was a controversial figure in death as much as she was in life. Everyone in India was talking about her passing, but they weren't all saying the same things. Some Indians thought Poulin had finally gotten what she deserved. She was, after all, a murderer. As we previously discussed, her political and ideological opponents were usually high-caste Hindus with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And that includes her assassin, Sher Singh Rana. Last week, we heard about how he waited outside Poulin's house and personally shot the bandit queen. We know all that primarily because he told us so. Witnesses to the shooting saw two or three masked men in the assassin's car, but they had no idea who they were. And police were unable to tail the suspects after they ditched their green car for a rickshaw. Investigators had few leads to go on in the first chaotic day after the assassination, and they were facing enormous public pressure to come up with suspects and leads. Poulin hadn't just been a member of parliament, she was perhaps its most famous member and a national hero to many Indians. Her murder was a source of outrage in low-caste communities from Uttar Pradesh to the capital. The people demanded an arrest. On June 27, 2001, one day after the assassination, the police caught a lucky break. Someone came forward with a confession. That day, Sher Singh Rana called a press conference at the Dune Press Club in his home state of Uttarakhand. It's unclear what the reporters expected to hear, but undoubtedly, it wasn't what Rana announced. He, along with an accomplice called Rajendra, had assassinated Poulan Devi. The reasons he gave were less surprising, at least to Indians with a keen understanding of violent caste conflict. 
Rana confessed he had killed Poulin in retribution for the infamous 1981 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. That fateful day, Poulin had murdered over 20 high-caste men in cold blood. For that, Rana said she deserved to die. Rana's confession placed the crime squarely within the larger saga of caste conflict that had defined Poulin's life from the beginning. But Rana didn't end his story there. There was a whole other element to the tale, one he wasn't ashamed to admit. He explained that he'd also carried out the killing because he wanted a career in politics. Killing someone famous made you famous too. And just as he'd planned, murdering Poulin Davy had immediately mobilized a base of high caste supporters. This second bizarre admission baffled investigators. But when Rana walked into the police station in Uttarakhand's capital, they certainly didn't hesitate to take him into custody. A confession was a confession. Still, law enforcement wasn't convinced that Rana had actually committed the crime he'd confessed to. First of all, there was no physical evidence tying him to the murder and even his confession quickly proved to be at least partially fabricated. His so-called accomplice, Rajendra, was in jail on the day of the assassination. That was a rock-solid alibi. That lie undermined Rana's credibility. On top of that, Rana's professed motive, advancing his career in politics, was served just as well by falsely confessing to the crime as it would have been by actually committing it. That is to say, there's no reason why he couldn't be taking credit for the real murderer's work for his own political gain. And the gap between the killing and the confession, which was confusing if Rana had actually committed the murder, made perfect sense if he was falsely confessing to it. It would take him some time to come up with the scheme of claiming responsibility. Essentially, police suspected that Rana's confession was opportunism and nothing more. Where Poulin had been the avenging low-caste hero, he tried to become the hero of his own caste. Meanwhile, police turned their suspicion on another suspect, Poulin's husband. In the week following the assassination, Indian newspapers exploded with stories about marital discord in the house of Poulin and Umed Singh, whom she had married after her release from jail in 1994. These stories claimed that at the time of her death, Poulin was drafting a will that would have cut her husband out of her book royalties and estate. Umed, unsurprisingly, insisted that his marriage to Poulin had been a loving one and that their quarrels were rarely serious. He also denied there was any will. But the police weren't happy with the testimony they'd received from Umed and the rest of Poulin's family. According to a senior officer, quote, there were many loopholes in what the family members have disclosed. It seems some of them were trying to conceal information. On top of that, there was a strange story of the murder weapons, which the assassins had dropped in the street. Members of Poulin's household had allegedly picked up the discarded guns and stashed them in the garage. At least three people were aware of their location, and all of them failed to tell the police. Investigators eventually learned the location of the weapons, 
but soon after that, they mysteriously went missing. Law enforcement was never able to test them for evidence. The case was proving to be more complicated than it seemed, despite the fact that Sher Singh Rana had already confessed. Investigators still assumed that Rana's confession was simply political opportunism. But he sorely misjudged the risks of taking credit for the crime. It was too high profile to leave unsolved. While the police might not have been convinced that Rana was their killer, he was the best suspect they had. And he was the one who would pay the price for Poulin's murder. Coming up, Rana, guilty or not, faces the consequences of his confession. Now back to the story. On July 26, 2001, Poulin Davy was murdered outside her house by two masked gunmen. One day later, 25-year-old Cher Singh Rana called a press conference and confessed to the crime. He claimed that he assassinated Poulin with the dual-pronged goal of avenging the 1981 St. Valentine's Day massacre and furthering his own political career. But police weren't so sure that he was the killer. They suspected he was just an opportunist who saw the crime as his chance to build a name for himself. Even after this confession, they questioned Poulin's family, including her husband. They looked into strange, evasive behavior by her household in the aftermath of the assassination. But they didn't find anything that could concretely tie anyone to the killing. And so they turned their focus back to Rana, rounding up his suspected co-conspirators. Ultimately, 11 people were charged with involvement in the shooting, including Rana and his brother. But the trial would not be a quick and easy affair, thanks to India's notorious judicial delays. The timeline for the trial was so long, one of the suspects would even die of natural causes while waiting for it to begin. Rana's publicity stunt hadn't accounted for the years he'd spend in prison waiting for the judicial system to start moving. Whether he'd actually committed the crime or not, he likely expected that he'd be given a speedy trial. He could demonstrate that there was no evidence against him besides his confession, and he'd get off scot-free. But that's not how it worked out. In fact, Rana got so frustrated waiting for the case to reach the courts that he came up with a new scheme. He was going to escape from the maximum security prison where he was being held. On February 17, 2004, more than two and a half years after Poulin's assassination, a man in a police uniform arrived at New Delhi's Tihar jail with a warrant for Sher Singh Rana. The policeman explained that he'd be taking Rana to court. As one of the guards later explained, there were other policemen waiting near a police van. We did not suspect a thing. The day continued, no one the wiser, with Rana supposedly off to court. That is, until another police party turned up at the prison with a warrant for Rana. The search was immediately on. A reward was offered for information leading to Rana's capture, but he was gone. His troop of false policemen had spirited him away long before anyone had realized he was missing. Although Rana was a free man, his situation was less than ideal. 
He was now a fugitive from the law. But he was also acutely aware of the ways in which his plan had worked. He had an audience now, and he was suddenly an upper-caste hero. He was intent on capitalizing on that. But first, he had to get out of India. Traveling along a winding path through India and then across the border with a false passport, Rana made his way to Afghanistan. He wanted to search for the mythical grave of the 12th century ruler, Prithviraj Chauhan, an icon of his Kshatriya caste, the warrior and leader class. Chauhan was the last Hindu to rule India before Muhammad of Gore defeated him in battle in 1192 and laid the foundation of Muslim rule across the country. Some Indian songs and stories suggested that his burial place was somewhere in the deserts of Afghanistan. Finding Chohan's elusive grave would cement Rana's status as a Kshatriya icon himself. And even if he didn't actually find the grave, if he made it to Afghanistan and claimed to have found it, that should do the trick. Just like his confession to Pulin's murder, Rana seemed to believe that facts were sometimes flexible things. What really mattered was optics. Rana claimed to find the grave, even posting a video of its location on YouTube. Clearly, he wasn't concerned with keeping a low profile. In 2006, after two years on the run, he was finally recovered by police and returned to jail in New Delhi. Still, Rana wasn't going to give up on his mission to show his cast that he was their hero. And so, from jail, he wrote about his miraculous escape and his journey to find Chauhan's grave. The memoir was published in 2002 as Jail Diary, From Tihar to Kabul, Kandahar. It did its job. The book helped cement Rana's status as a hero of the warrior class and a conservative political icon. The people, especially those from the high castes, loved him. His fans came out to support him when he finally took the witness stand in 2014. About 50 young men from Rana's warrior caste waited outside the courthouse during the trial. One of them declared, he's a tiger. Whether or not he'd committed the murder didn't matter so much anymore. He'd already gained the platform he dearly wanted. Perhaps that's why now he furiously denied any involvement in the murder, hoping that he'd get off based on the lack of evidence. That's what had happened for the rest of his 10 co-conspirators. All the charges against them were dismissed. But 13 years after the crime, despite the doubt and confusion that still mired the assassination, 38-year-old Rana was convicted on the basis of his own confession. He was sentenced to life in prison. We may never know if Rana's initial admission was a risky publicity stunt or if he really was one of the three men who committed the murder. But despite his conviction, it would be wrong to consider the whole affair a failure for the rookie politician. He was now a household name across India. And many members of the upper caste were calling him a hero, just as he'd planned. His sister, Shika Singh Rana's statement, perhaps expresses this position most succinctly. My brother, Sher Singh Rana, is innocent. Poolan killed so many innocent people. 
even if Rana has murdered Poulin, he has done no wrong as she was a bandit. Shika Singh Rana's mentality was set squarely in the cycle of caste conflict. To Indians at the top of the social hierarchy, lower-class rebellion couldn't be solved with mere legal repercussions. It demanded blood, which was, at least apparently, what Rana had given them. 40-year-old Rana got out of prison on bail two years after his sentencing in 2016. His fans were ready to welcome him back to his home state of Uttarakhand. Upper caste citizens of neighboring states like Pulandevi's Uttar Pradesh celebrated his return too. Two years after that, in 2018, Rana was implicated in another caste conflict-related murder in Uttar Pradesh. A Dalit man named Sachin Walia was murdered by a high caste group, and Walia's mother accused Rana in her initial report to police. However, he was never charged. And this episode did nothing to dim Rana's star. If anything, the suspicion raised his status as an upper-class warrior. And he has enthusiastically capitalized on that status. Since being released from prison, Rana has spent much of his time traveling around northern India, giving talks to upper-caste groups and communities. His popularity is evident online, too. There's an appreciative YouTube song about him which opines you have done a lot for your community. They even sell Rana t-shirts online. So despite more than a decade spent in and out of prison, Rana's bid for notoriety seems to have worked. In part, that's because of the violent nationwide caste battle that continues to rage around him. Poulin's death and Rana's confession were only the spark for a much larger and more explosive revolutionary fire. Coming up, we'll discuss how Poulin's legacy plays into India's complicated journey towards a more equal society. Now, the conclusion to our story. In 2014, Sher Singh Rana was convicted of the murder of Poulin Devi, India's bandit queen. And while doubt still shrouds the case, it is clear that Rana understood the enormous caste tensions that colored the crime. These pressures have not gone away since his conviction or his release from jail in 2016, and he's used them to catapult himself to the status of warrior caste hero. But Rana's story is only one small piece of a much larger saga. Rana was released from jail just as caste tensions were deepening even further. According to crime statistics, in recent years, caste-related violence has increased across India. But it's mostly aggression that goes one way. It's enacted by high-caste people against the low-caste, and particularly the lowest of the low, the Dalits, or untouchables. This uptick in violent crime may seem surprising in the face of India's rapidly growing infrastructure and economic development. The country now has one of the largest economies in the world. Counterintuitively, it may actually be this upward mobility that feeds the class conflict. 
Low caste Indians are starting to push back against the caste system's rigid social hierarchy. They see change on the horizon and they are ready to grasp it. Meanwhile, they are less willing to put up with the discrimination and brutal injustice they've faced for generations. In January 2016, a renewed movement for equality erupted across India. The first spark was the suicide death of a PhD student. His passing was largely attributed to caste-based discrimination at his university, which stopped paying him his monthly stipend in July 2015. The so-called Una lynchings followed in July 2016. Four members of a Dalit family in Gujarat were publicly assaulted for skinning a dead cow, a sacred animal in the Hindu religion. Then, on New Year's Day 2018, violence against the Dalit community in Mumbai, India's commercial hub, led to a statewide strike in the region. These events all exemplified the discrimination and violence faced by those at the bottom of the caste system. As with Poulin Davies' story, they brought discussions about caste to the forefront of the public discourse. And they launched a new movement for greater equality across castes. This wave of violence highlighted how rampant and insidious the caste hierarchy's problems really are. Organizers spearheaded protests across the country demanding a government-led solution to discrimination. Several newly elected youth leaders led the charge on the government's response. They openly talked about caste politics and actively discussed the most effective ways to dismantle the caste hegemony in India. But the violence persists when low caste Indians make even small bids for change. They're met with brutal retaliation. For example, in March 2018, a Dalit man named Pradeep Rathod rode a horse. That's all there is to it. He owned the horse and he rode it. But Dalits, as the lowest caste, are traditionally banned from riding horses. As a result, Rathod was murdered. It's likely that Rathod had only dared to own and ride a horse thanks to the extensive change, growth, and modernization in India, as well as the new movement for caste equality. According to political commentator Chandra Ban Prasad, this small act of rebellion would have been incomprehensible decades earlier. But high caste Indians, especially in rural parts of the country, are determined to keep enforcing the rules their society has lived by for thousands of years. Rules that keep them economically and socially privileged. This means that even now, as Prasad explains, low-caste Indians, quote, are paying a price for their freedom. Part of what makes the caste hierarchy so hard to break down is the fact that it's an integral part of the Hindu religion. Avati Ramaya, a sociology professor in Mumbai, explains, you may talk about India being a world power, a global power, sending satellites into space. But as long as Hinduism is strong, caste will be strong. And as long as there is caste, there will be lower caste. And that lower caste, Ramaya explains, experiences violence that is intimate, sadistic, 
and cruel. Not much has changed in the nearly four decades since Poulan Davy fought back against her abusers with the same violence that they had shown her. But as recent protests prove, the desire for reform is spreading. Most Indians imagine that if she'd lived, Poulan Davy would have been a central part of this new revolution. She'd represented low caste rebellion against the established order throughout her entire life. Surely, she would have wanted to play a part in dismantling the system. But was Poulin still the avenging low-caste angel she seemed to be after she gave up banditry? When she took office in 1996, most low-caste Indians hoped and expected that she would fight for them in Parliament, just like she had in the ravines of the Chamble River Valley. But let's delve a little deeper into what Poulin Davy was actually doing in Parliament before her death and what she might have accomplished had she been there longer. It's no surprise that some of Poulin's detractors called her a political opportunist when she first began her campaign. They pointed to the fact that once she was elected, she would have parliamentary immunity, which would help her avoid prosecution for her previous crimes. And they seem to have evidence that Poulin wasn't really fighting for India's underprivileged now that she'd given up her life of crime. Money was pouring in from her book and eventually the Bandit Queen movie, though she'd had to fight hard for a share of the film's profits. She even switched out her rough bandit's clothes and started dressing like a middle-class Indian woman in colorful saris. Marrying a fellow politician didn't help her cause either. She seemed to be morphing into a respectable, rich Indian woman. It was hard to see the swashbuckling bandit through the new trappings. Her circumstances had changed vastly from her childhood in a rural village and then her time as a marauding bandit queen in the Chamble River Valley. But Poulin actually did stay true to her roots and her image as a low-caste hero during her brief stint in Parliament. She visited prisons to observe living conditions. She raised the plights of the low caste in parliamentary discussions. She insisted that it was essential to change a culture that normalized rape, murder, and pedophilia. She would even stop trains and meet with the common people riding them to show how much she valued every person in India, however unimportant the caste system told them they were. This integrity during her parliamentary years helped Poulin's legend stay alive, and it ensured that in the wake of her death, her story and legacy would be an enduring part of movements for change. In the years since her death, rallies across the country have denounced the police's failures to respond to the rapes of children. Poulin was a rape survivor herself, and particularly advocated for girls while in Parliament. These protesters were following directly in her footsteps. 2001, the year Poulin died, was also the first year in which female literacy in India rose above 50%. Given that Poulin couldn't read or write for most of her life, she would have likely been a major force in improving literacy rates if she'd stayed alive. In the years since her death, the government has made real efforts to promote equality, despite the deeply entrenched prejudices of the caste system. 
Work programs such as Munrega now guarantee low caste and poor Indians a minimum of 100 days paid labor to help them escape poverty. If she had lived longer, it seems inevitable that Poulin would have continued her fight for India's lower castes, for its women and for its little girls who were forced to marry men three times their age. At the time of her death, the fight had barely begun. We can imagine that over the years, Poulin would have been elected to more terms in Parliament and perhaps higher offices too. Perhaps she would have divorced her husband. She wasn't a woman afraid to fend for herself. And if the rumors after her death were accurate, the couple wasn't exactly living in marital bliss. Or perhaps she would have had children, either with her husband, on her own, or with someone else. Any choice she made would have been remarkable simply because she was making them on her own. When she was still a little girl, she was fated to a life as a child bride to an abusive husband. But she ran away. She fought back against her fate, and she found a way to be free and independent. Things have started to change in India, if perhaps more slowly than they would have with Poulin at the wheel. As a respected, even revered champion of the downtrodden, her voice would have been a powerful one in the new generation's struggle for equality. Using both her personal fame and her role as an MP, she might have helped transform the energy and anger of the new movement into solid policy action in Parliament. But whatever Poulin's role in today's caste revolution might have been, the mere existence of the movement indicates just how much further change needs to go before equality will be achieved. Perhaps that's why she remains such a compelling figure. Her fight is ongoing, even if she's no longer here to participate. She's an imperfect hero, since she participated in cyclical, violent, vigilante justice. And it's important not to skate over the fact that she was a murderer. But as violence continues to affect the low castes she championed, rather than the high castes she targeted, it's no surprise that Poulin Davy is still a relevant hero across all of India. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with a new episode you can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 